Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm honored to talk to one of my own personal superheroes, someone that I've been looking up to for almost a decade now, Dr. Anders Ericsson. Anders is a professor of psychology at Florida State University and the world's leading expert on what it takes to become the greatest in the world in domains such as sports, arts, music, medicine, chess, and many, many more. He's also author of the fantastic book, Peak, The New Science of Expertise. And that's exactly what we'll talk about today. How to become the best in the world in your chosen profession. The right kind of practice, as he calls it, deliberate practice that you need in order to actually get better and develop new skills. How much rest you need to really recover from those effortful practices and many, many more practical ideas and tips and tricks and how you can rise the ladder in your chosen profession and actually develop expertise and skill. So I had an absolute blast shooting this episode. It's always amazing when you meet one of your superheroes and they actually turn out to be you know, just as amazing or maybe even more than you thought they were. So I hope you really enjoyed. Let's dive right in. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you. And I was so excited to have you. And I really want to create lots of paradigm shifts for people here today listening to us and the way that they view expert performance and even their own lives. And I also want to break some myths, bust some myths around what it really takes to become great in life. So first I want to get started with what you call the gift. And, you know, for our listeners, that is not, you know, innate talent. It's not intelligent. It's not raw athletic skill. So can you share with us a little bit about that gift that all of us possess that allows us to actually become better at the things that we care about? Yeah, I think when we started analyzing and studying people who really excelled at what they were doing, uh, we could find, you know, that they weren't born with these characteristics, but it was actually something that they actively developed and shaped by engaging in the right kind of practice. And I guess our claim is that anyone has, you know, this potential for changing and improving what you're doing uh, at pretty much any age. Uh, I guess the, the one thing that we would have to say, though, that there's no magic. Uh, I mean, anybody who's looking for magical potions or, <laughs> or, or basically secret formulas, uh, it, what, what you find is it's a very extended process. Even those people who everyone would agree are just really remarkable and outstanding in what they can do, once you start looking at how they became able to do that, it's a very long journey. Yes, I love that. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper later into what it really takes, what kind of practice, how long, how much, how do we do that, right? Um, but first of all, what are some of the changes that go on in the brain as we develop mastery in our fields? Well, you know, it depends on what type of expertise we're talking about. You know, I guess in many sports like running, you know, uh, the brain is going to have to change, but it's also your muscles and you can actually see that the very best runners, uh, their hearts have actually adapted to, so that it's able to pump out a lot of blood. And I think a lot of people know that athletes, when they're resting, you know, their heart rate is not, you know, around 70. It could be as low as around 30, indicating here that their hearts really don't have to beat nearly as fast just to kind of deal with a normal situation and 
when they're competing <clears throat> and their heart is actually going maximal, then that extra uh, kind of ability here to circulate blood, so there's going to be oxygen to the muscles, you know, that's going to be key. But you can look at pretty much anything except the length of bones, where we know about a process that would allow you now to change those physical characteristics with training. So for example, tennis players, their arms uh, that they hold the racket in, it has thicker bones than the arm that is not holding the racket. So the length of their bones than their arms is no different, but the thickness wow. and the thickness is actually being kind of stimulated by the vibrations that you get anytime when you hit the ball very hard with your racket. And that now translates into a process that activates uh, basically genes that then uh, you know, regulate the uh, growth of the bone so they will actually you know, vibrate less uh, as you're adapting now to this type of stimulus. What is so interesting because, I mean, what this really means is that, you know, other than height, we can pretty much change and adapt and, and really improve any kind of characteristics, any skill that we want to acquire in our lives, right? Well, you know, to be safe here, I, I, I would say I have yet to find any compelling evidence that there are such things. But uh, as a scientist, you can't really speak yeah. <laughs> to you know, what could possibly be uncovered. But I think it's surprising now that people have been looking for those kinds of things that you really can't change uh, for at least the last 30, 40 years. And, and in my reading of the literature, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised to find that, you know, nobody has been able to pinpoint something that, you know, there wouldn't be a kind of training that would allow you now to modify it. Yeah, no, absolutely love that. Now, you mentioned before that that adaptation of the, the human mind and body requires practice and the right kind of practice. And you have this great quote that says, living in a cave does not make you a geologist, <laughs> right? And I absolutely love that. So what kind of practice is really necessary to actually become better rather than just stay at the same level? Well, I, I think the general description would be to set a goal uh, that uh, so you are really setting a goal that's outside of what you currently are able to do and and maybe we could just use the example here of running so you're running say a 10k or something and your current when you do your best you're basically now running at a given time <clears throat> so the question is now what do you need to do here to be able to reduce the time that you will be able to run that race and there's been an accumulation about, you know, what kind of practice really makes a difference. And it doesn't seem to be as important that you basically just run a lot. Mm -hmm. In fact, the focus needs to be on you pushing yourself at your limits. So interval training, where you run as fast as you can for about 100 meters, and then you're totally exhausted. You get to walk for maybe 15, 20 seconds. And then <clears throat> you run maximally again. And what's interesting is that most amateur runners find that that activity is very aversive because it's sort of pushing yourself against your own limits. And I would argue that 
those people who do do it, I, I think you can get used to preparing for that type of training. But it's also the case that once you're committed to a goal, you're much more willing now to do what needs to be done in order to make these improvements. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love that example. Um, I told you before I was studying at Florida Gulf Coast University and I actually ran cross country and track and field there. So, you know, that example really hits home. <laughs> um, and Mr. is good old running that. But um, I find it so fascinating. So what you're saying basically is that you need to have a goal, right? First of all, and then you need to, you know, do some effortful practice. You need to do things that are hard or difficult, right? So what other kind of well, I, I think the way when we analyzed the literature, we found <clears throat> that the best thing you can do is to find a teacher that has actually brought people like yourself to the level that you aspire to get to. And in and, and music, they've basically been looking for effective training methods for like two, three hundred years. <clears throat> so there's a relatively good understanding of what kind of training would allow you now to be able to speed up certain kinds of movements and get additional control? And it also has to do a little bit with <clears throat> having the right fundamentals. So when you're playing the piano, when you're starting, these simple pieces can be played pretty much in all sorts of different ways. But if you want to basically be on the road here of being basically uh, international level pianist, you actually have to do it so you will now prepare yourself to have that control as it gets more difficult. So in the beginning, if you actually end up doing it in a very idiosyncratic way, the only way you're gonna be able to advance might be actually to relearn the fundamentals so you can now uh, you know, rely on them uh, for your continued improvement. Yes, that is so interesting. That really gives sort of broader context to what we really have to do in order to become great, right? And actually what, what your research has also shown is that like just, you know, years of experience don't actually make you better, right? So simply repeating things over and over and over again, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an athlete, right? Mindlessly repeating things doesn't actually make you better, does it? Right. No, no, that's exactly. So I would argue that when you start in a domain, you know, like playing tennis or golf, there's a period when you actually will improve significantly. But when you get to a point here where you're kind of reach that acceptable level so you can play with other people, that's often where people kind of get stuck. And they don't even know what they need to do in order to change. And I think that's the reason why having a teacher who actually have seen other people like yourself will now be able to find kind of appropriate goals that are reachable that will eventually set down the path of actually improving your performance. But that training is sort of different from the fun aspects of just playing with your friends because now you actually have to focus in and you know really concentrate and push yourself to your limits in order to get that adaptation of your body Yes, that's really so, so important to remember, I think, because so many people just, you know, kind of keep doing, you know, keep going out there and just do it, right? They just play a little bit with their friends or they, they go for that run and they think they're getting better, right? They think they're training themselves to actually advance and improve. 
but but what you're really saying here is that like once you've reached that level it's not enough anymore to to just mindlessly practice right you have to put that deliberate focus on how can i get better right what skill specifically can i improve and so if we want to do this really over you know years and decades and we're going to talk about that later um how big or small do those goals have to be like do you just set this you know grand vision for like this is where i want to be in 10 years and then break it down or how do you usually approach goal setting well you know again i would point to the teacher as being so it probably depends a little bit on where the individual is starting. And, and, but, but essentially, that's something that is very difficult for an individual to judge if they don't basically, you know, for whatever reason, are you know, really knowledgeable about what it takes to improve in that domain. And that's the reason why we think, you know, argue that look for a teacher because that teacher with their experience are really going to kind of one, make it plausible to yourself that given that they've led all these other people, and, and I wish there was more videos of what, they peop what these individuals looked like when they started, mm -hmm. and actually videos as they got better, so people could actually see, you know, here's this individual, uh, he is the same age as I am, and it took him two years to get to that point. And this is kind of what he did in the interim, because that, I think, gives so much more kind of credibility to the project. And, and I think that's one of the problems with people who want to do things. And then somebody who may be viewed as an expert or whatever just tells them, you know, you really don't have the talent. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to say? <clears throat> but if you actually work, you know, with a teacher who cannot point to these other individuals and also give you a little bit of a sense here of how much change and how long a time would it be required for you now to have these biological changes and changes in technique and everything. Uh, and I think a lot of people think of learning, you know, you just tell somebody, okay, do this. But that's very different from now this individual incorporating that change in everything that they're doing. And I think that is something that people really need, I think, to rethink. The, that it's not just having the knowledge of what you basically should be doing. You have to basically now modify and adapt that knowledge. So once you're often in a real-time situation, that you've now developed the skills so they kind of incorporate that knowledge. And, and there's actually some interesting work looking at medical doctors who are attending conferences, you know, hearing about all the new things that basically they're recommended. And when they did the research, they found that, you know, these doctors, when they got back to the clinic, they just kept on doing what they were doing. <laughs> wow, that is so interesting. You know, there's, there's this quote I absolutely love by Derek Sivers. He said, if more knowledge was the answer, we'd all be billionaires with perfect ass, right? And I love that quote because well, oftentimes we know, right? Those doctors know like, hey, that's how I should change my practice. And yet they still don't do it. So what have we found maybe, are there some key techniques? Is it again, mentorship and having a teacher that really allows people then when they, you know, are given that advice of, hey, this is how you do it better. What, what is sort of the difference between the people that take it and run with it and actually apply it 
and then people just kind of take it in and you know forget about it like next week i i think that's a great question and i think if we knew uh the answer to that question uh that would be very important and i think with like with most questions it's easier to ask the question than it is yeah. to answer it but i think in general I would argue that those individuals that I find who are somehow really committed to being excellent in whatever they're doing, that that is not something that just happens suddenly. I mean, it's almost like something that is kind of part of who you think you are. But it also means that these individuals very often are sensitized now to things that really makes a big difference to them. So like, for example, a doctor who is a really keen on trying to improve their surgical outcomes, they would be interacting now with a patient. And when they actually see here that the fact that they were the ones who were given surgery to this patient probably improved the outcome or the probable outcome of that surgery by a significant amount. And I think basically getting that satisfaction here that you made a difference to somebody else's life, those are the kind of feedback loops that I think, you know, just uh, kind of maintain that motivation and willingness to do the hard things as opposed to the simple things. Because obviously if you're going to sit down with all your people in your clinic and go through here the 10 new things, and then basically working with each individual and have them now basically understand how they need to change things in order to now really capitalize on, on those new insights. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an important point you're mentioning here, which is developing expertise is not like a, you know, two night thing, right? It doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it takes many, many years and even decades of our lives. So in 2008, uh, Malcolm Gladwell popularized the so-called 10,000-hour rule, right? Where he said basically it takes 10,000 hours to become a world-class expert. But that's you know obviously not telling the full story of it. So how much practice do people actually need? What have you found around? You know what is sort of the timeline that people actually need to become really world-class level? Well, our disagreement with Malcolm Gladwell, I guess, would be two things. One there's nothing magical about 10,000 hours, uh, not even the example that he cited from our own research. There's really no magical thing here that happens after 10,000 hours. And it, and it really wouldn't make sense here that the cells in your body would actually keep track of how much you've been practicing. Yeah, and all of a sudden it's like, bam, done. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and in fact, my estimate is that uh, somebody winning a piano competition probably spent more like 25,000 hours of solitary practice. But the more, even more important thing, uh, Malcolm Gladwell is talking about practice, where he basically refers to the amount of time that the Beatles was playing in Germany as an example. So basically the more hours of playing, basically he felt might be related now to their ability to become as successful. Now, when we talk about deliberate practice, we talk about that training that you actually do with the primary intent here of just improving. So it's not like you can more or less play for 
audiences because there's a big difference trying to do the best that you can do with your current abilities and the work that you do basically when you're practicing uh, with the purpose of just getting better. And, and, and when we talk about deliberate practice, we're talking about that time that you spend ideally under the supervision of a teacher who basically can now guide you as to what is the more appropriate training that you can do once we, uh, you and the teacher have identified, you know, the next set of goals. Yeah, so, so, so this, the theme of like having a teacher, having some kind of mentor in your life seems seem so important and, and really being able to do the right kind of practice, right? So where, where do you see the balance? Do you think that, you know, sort of competing in whatever it is that you do can ever be really deliberate practice? Or is it just like sort of performance and deliberate practice happens only, you know, off the court, when you're you know, basically alone, just by yourself, no audience, no anything, maybe you just you and your mentor. How do you see that balance? Uh, that's a very good question. And, and I think what I would argue, and, and I'm not sure here that I have the evidence to prove it, competition is obviously critical because that is the ultimate kind of measure of basically your performance. So if you're great when you're in the practice room, but you know, you basically have all sorts of breakdowns when you're in front of the audience, that wouldn't qualify to be an expert performer. And I think there are a lot of issues standing in front of an audience, and, and people have pointed out with musicians that pretty much every musician makes mistakes. So in the practice room, you could just stop and redo it, but that's not an option when you're playing in front of an audience. So you actually have to learn techniques now when you make a mistake. So now you change how you actually keep playing, which means that the audience may not even hear that you made a mistake because you've been able to hide it by basically how you change the way you were playing. And, and I would argue that, you know, basically the other issues here of basically what your focus and attention should be when you're performing is sort of a skill that also needs to be trained. So musicians often talk about practice performance where you're actually performing as if you were to a big audience, but you maybe have just one or two friends or your teacher, but it's essentially you have the set here of making your best possible performance, which is quite different from that idea of basically, okay, I can do this again and repair this or I can try to do this, but I can only do it half of the time. So basically that separation between your best performance that you can give at a given point in time and what you need to be focusing in on when you do is quite different from the focus that you would have in the practice room. Yeah, so it sounds like it's really almost two different skill sets that you need, right? One is really the ability to play, and then the other one is the ability to play when it matters, right? When the nerve's on, when the pressure's on, and all of that stuff. And I can relate to that from, from running, right? We always, you know, had these pre-season you know, pre races and, and preparations, right? Where we'd, you know, we'd basically race, but in sort of low-key races, right? Where, like, the pressure wasn't as high as an actual race, but would basically allow us to adapt, like mainly mentally, right, to the rising pressure, to running in front of fans and audiences and all that stuff. And what it allowed us to do was then 
you know, basically take more of our potential in those moments where it mattered and really maximize that. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying here. I love that. Yeah, I, I think you would have that in pretty much all the domains that we looked at. Now, we've been interested in those domains where you actually can measure individuals' performance and make sure that this is something that an individual can do repeatedly at a level that's better than other people. So the problem, I guess, is that there's a lot of things that happen in our society where somebody does something amazing, but we don't know how much <laughs> luck was actually involved in this because it's not like that person is doing that same thing on the football or basketball court, you know, again and again. They did it once and basically that's amazing. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the famous basketball players point out that they l make a lot of mistakes, but typically when people remember them, they would remember these more amazing things that they did in a particular game. Yeah, and, uh, what does really, really, you know, resonates with me is, is that if you want to develop mastery, it really takes just the ability to do something over and over and over again, right? It's not just this one-time shot, like this one lucky thing that you did once, but true expertise and mastery means that you've gone to the point where you can consistently show up day after day after day and bring basically your peak performance again and again, rather than just, you know, Monday maybe, and then, you know, in two months maybe if you'll have a lucky day, right? But it means this consistency. Exactly, and, and I guess I, I like the word control. Hmm. So I would argue that the expert, they can do a lot of different things and they can do it very reliably. Uh, less skilled individuals, they kind of try to do their best and it's almost impossible for them to reproduce what they just did. We actually did a study where we compared uh, basically expert pianists with people who were amateurs and we just asked them to play the same piece. So they first played it, and then we told them, play it exactly the same way a second time. And only the experts were actually able to reproduce exactly what they did, whereas the amateurs, you know, they just did it again, but yeah. they didn't have that control where they actually knew how, what they had done that, you know, they would need to reproduce. Okay, so having that sense of control, you can do something again and again. That, that is really important. Right. And you can also, <clears throat> as a musician, you can kind of think about what you want it to sound like. And now you can then implement that in the way you're playing. And by actually listening to what it sounds like when you're playing, you can now see whether you were successful in actually making that image that you had. A lot of less skilled musicians they don't have those abilities of, like in their mind, create a sound experience for the audience and then basically translate that into what they need to do. And then also actually being able to monitor, especially during training, uh, where they're actually making adjustments to, you know, be able to actually deliver that, uh, you know, image that they had of the music experience uh, that they, initial generated in their mind. Yes, yeah, so, so I'm understanding you right here. It's, it's also those, those mental representations that you develop through, you know, just practicing deliberately. Those also help you sort of judge more how well you're actually doing, right? So in running, for example, the better I become, the more I train, what I've realized is 
the more I could actually judge my performance on a daily basis. The more, no, hey, today I'm really running at my best or maybe I'm not, right? And like, what, what is it like? I feel like you, you become more distinct. Is that something that you really you know, also found in other fields? Yeah, and, and I think there's some early research that I thought was quite interesting. So they asked, I guess, I think this was marathon runners, what they were thinking about during the marathon. And, and the less skilled individuals, you know, they were just trying to think about something nice and, yeah, and, and just, just the, get the, through the, it. In the end, the beer. <laughs> right. Whereas the really skilled ones, they were really listening to their body because that's the way they would be able to maximize now their running efficiency and pace themselves appropriately so they would be able to, uh, you know, complete the best possible run. And I think what you were talking about, that running of actually assessing, I think if you're sensitized to what it feels like when you now have your best form, that basically is now something that you need to once acquire, but also then you can use it as a way of, of helping yourself, uh, you know, get closer to that. And if something happens, you know, like weather changes, you can now make adjustments that maximizes your ability here to perform, even though you might actually have to run a little bit differently because it's much more slippery or something. Yes, and that's another important part, right, which is that when, when you're an actual expert in something, then, you know, outside circumstances don't have as much of an influence anymore on your performance, right? So the weather might be bad, right? There might be uphill, downhill, you might, you know, have a little injury or you might, you know, have some, you know, I don't know, headaches or whatever it is, right? But you're not going to be, you know, as influenced by that as, you know, someone else that, that hasn't developed the level of mastery, right? And what, what I'm thinking also is uh, Michael Jordan's flu game, for example, right? Like he was able, you know, just being totally physically sick, still able to perform better than anybody else because he, he had developed this practice so much that even when he was at his lowest kind of thing, right, he was still able to perform whereas others would have just, you know, lied at hospital or whatever. Yeah, and, and I think that's really interesting. And I don't know that I'm aware of too much research on people who perform when they were sick. Uh, so that's hard for me. No, I guess that is, that is a very <laughs> rare but, example. But, you know, I, I agree with you that that, that that is sort of interesting. and But unfortunately, I, I guess I don't really know what, you know, uh, exactly was happening with his body and, and for what, in what sense, you know, he was doing things differently. But I do know that if you're talking about musicians that come to a music hall that has different acoustics, they can now change how they're actually playing their musical instrument to kind of adapt and try to maximize now kind of the sound that they're producing. And in the same way that <clears throat> a tennis player, when the wind is going one way or the other way, you know, they can adjust how they're hitting, you know, because they actually have acquired skills dealing with these things of actually controlling now of how they would uh, kind of deal with basically wind. Uh, so that's kind of part of their skill of being able to make those adjustments. In the same way that a golfer, you know, if basically you have had rain in the morning, so the greens are much wetter and slower, he would be able to adjust now how he's actually putting, given now his skill set. Whereas, you know, a less skilled golfer may 
only really have one putt that they can call upon and it's going to be quite variable because we know that if we ask uh, golfers to execute the same putt 10 times, the experts, it's quite clustered. So they're actually able to reproduce that same putt the same way. But when you give the same task to less skilled golfers, it's going to be far more variable, yeah. indicating here, you know, a much more reduced control. And then basically, once you have the control, if you can now make adjustments to it because of external conditions, that's how you can deal now with the fact that basically it's going to require, physically speaking, a different kind of energy hitting the golf ball to get the best possible result. Wow, that, that's just, that's just so mind-blowingly interesting. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious um, to hear your take on the kind of focus that it takes. And so what I mean by that is, um, personally, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So I'm you know, working full-time, studying full-time, running semi-professionally, trying to build this podcast and you know, business, basically, and also trying to have some social life, right? And so I'm trying to you know, basically excel in these five areas of my life, all at a big level. And what I've realized is, you know, it's just not possible, right? At some point, something has to, you know, sort of give in, right? Because there's just limits in terms of, you know, time and energy that we can take on every day. So I had to decide to give up running so I could do the things that would actually sort of fulfill my life's purpose. But I'm really curious to hear your perspective on, you know, how do we handle or balance those different aspects of our lives? Like, is it possible to succeed at multiple areas at the highest level? Or do we need that monomaniacal focus on this one thing, playing the violin, learning the sport, to really become more close to that? You know, I think this is a great question. And looking at those people, but, but that's obviously kind of a select group that makes a commitment out to compete in the Olympics or, you know, basically play uh, as an international soloist or, or, you know, basically playing chess or whatever. In those cases, those individuals, because I guess that's one issue that an expert encounters immediately is, how do you basically make a living? Because very few people would actually be paying for you spending, you know, four hours a day practicing yeah. running. Now, <laughs> Not a very useful thing it, for the world, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of successful people, they would have sponsors and mm -hmm. maybe other people would have parents or, you know, other individuals who would be able to kind of sustain them. But if you look at, uh, you know, like one group which is interesting is authors, really famous authors. What they would tend to do is a difference now between when they're actually writing the book, they would typically now move to a place where they would have much more control over social life. So they would basically be maybe writing three, four hours in the morning. And then the rest of the day, they would be more or less just kind of relaxing. And they, you know, that might be a good time to socialize with other people. Uh, and then they would make sure that they would get enough sleep. <clears throat> and I guess one sign that I think is interesting is if you can wake up by yourself in the morning without an alarm clock. That's typically the sign that you've gotten enough rest. And we found with the musicians, you know, that they slept around eight, nine hours uh, 
basically one of those hours was a nap in the afternoon. But most college students, you know, they sleep considerably less. Uh, and my feeling is, ask yourself, what is the most challenging activity that you have? So if you really want to improve one thing, what would that be? And then I would basically engage in that basically in the morning for, you know, one or two hours. And then, and I think that's a little bit, if you're a university professor, you know, you, you are going to have to give lectures and you have to do this and that. So I think I have about two hours in the morning when I can actually do my best work. And then once I've done that, then I can move over to other things where it's not as key, at least not in that, you know, during that particular part of my career that I excel in this and that. But thinking about, you know, what is it where you really need to be at the edge of your current ability. And ideally, if you're working with a teacher, you know, what are the things that you're now able to modify and improve? Well, there's, there's really so much interesting stuff here that I wanna dissect a little bit. So first of all, the, the sleep example is, is just so interesting, I think, because many people, I know so many people that wear, you know, lack of sleep, almost like this badge of honor, right? They're like proud, only sleep like four hours a night, five hours a night, right? But what you're really saying is here, you actually detrimentally influence your ability to perform at your best and to get better and to build new skill sets when you don't sleep enough, right? And that is so powerful, I think, for everyone listening to this to just think about really, are you getting enough sleep on a daily basis? Because if you're not, you may be studying 10 hours a day, but it's not going to be as effective, right? And so I think... And, and, and that's why it's so important here to be able to almost... And you could do a self-experiment where for a week or two, you're actually now changing how you're doing things. And hopefully then you would be able to evaluate. So those two or three hours in the morning when you're actually working on this thing that is really key for you to basically make progress right now, is that progress getting more than when you did it the other way when, and, and I think, you know, some people who don't sleep enough, they're pretty much not very effective until lunchtime. Yeah. And then basically if they're going to be doing some really challenging work, they often end up doing it just before they go to sleep. And, and basically I think that, is, or at least I haven't found examples of people who do it that way, who have the option of doing it some other way. Now, if you were forced to make a living here for your family or whatever, to work eight to five and then add another hour travel time, when would you be able to work on basically the thing that's important to you? Well, that might be in the at night when your kids are asleep, but that's very different from that person has more control over when they would be doing things and you know especially if you give yourself a more long-term plan you can actually make sure now that these two three hours you're really protecting that and only you know when you absolutely have to would allow other things to interfere with you spending that you know highly productive time for uh, your high priority projects. 
what that is really such an important distinction here between having your know, sort of ideal life circumstances, right? Where you can do it whenever you want and having those sort of outside things like a job, for example. So, so for me, for example, right now, I usually wake up like before 4 a.m. and do between 4 and 8 a.m., right? That's when I do my practice time, my speaking and all that. Because the only time I can fit it in and really be cognitively so awake. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear about this because, you know, athletic skills, running, for example, there's some obvious physical limits to how much we can practice every day, right? So I can run, you know, 100 miles every week or I, I just know I'll get injured, right? But when it comes to these mental pursuits, right, or, or things that are maybe even less physical, maybe like playing the piano, right, or, or maybe really cognitively advanced tasks, what, it, what do you see sort of as the limit um, to how much we should practice every day by still making sure that we can actually do it over, you know, over long run, over years and decades of our lives and not burn out? Well, you know, I've talked to chess players and musicians, and I would argue that they are, you know, very similar to the kind of restrictions I was talking about. Uh, so it's very rare to find, you know, very skilled musicians who would be practicing more than maybe four, maybe five hours a day. And, and typically they would do maybe two or three in the morning, and then they would basically maybe do something else, and then they would take lunch, and then often they would take a nap after lunch, because that would in some ways be the most optimal way for them to get back to that high concentration so they could put in one or two hours of practice in the afternoon. And, and basically, but I would argue that anyone would, should be sensitized to kind of the clearness and your ability here to at least reach the absolute highest level that you can, because if you really want to go beyond that, then obviously you need at least to be able to produce that highest level that you are able to do. And I think that idea that a lot of people have that when they're practicing, you know, they only have to put in 50%. But essentially when you ask yourself, what could possibly happen if you're actually doing this thing at 50%, why would you be now more able to do it under competitive condition? So, uh, you know, I, I think Michael Jordan was criticized by his teammates when uh, was playing as a professional because he claimed during practice, I want to be at the same level that mm -hmm. when I'm uh, playing matches, because that's the only way that I can actually get better. Mm. Wow. But, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and I think it would be useful for people who are interested to kind of create almost like a little experiment for themselves to kind of now see whether in fact, these factors would make a difference that would benefit them, uh, especially in the long run. Because it is possible to, you know, maybe for two, three weeks, or maybe even four, to basically be going 100%. But what happens after that is typically that people almost get fatigued, and, and sometimes they exhibit almost symptoms of depression because they are so you know, had pushed themselves so beyond, so they weren't basically having that routine of making sure that every day your body gets enough time to kind of recuperate and basically get back to a healthy state until you, you know, do something to push it even further. 
Yes, I agree. I, th I think this, this idea of overtraining oftentimes comes, especially in athletics, right, comes to bear because this has happened so many times to myself, right, where like I was just running so much. I was kind of approaching it like Michael Jordan, right, just going hard every day like it was, you know, the race of my life, right? And what happens is you burn out, right? Like your body is just so fatigued and you can't keep going anymore. And so, so I, I totally agree with you that over the long run, it's not really smart strategy to try to go all out every single day, right? You want to make sure that what you're doing, especially because it takes so much time, is actually sustainable, right? And so you mentioned before your own routine in the morning at two hours. So what does your own, you know, deliberate practice look like? What are you working on? Is it, you know, writing? Is it doing research? And how do you, you know, sort of incorporate those principles into your own life? Well, maybe I should go back uh, uh, just a little bit uh, to the time when I was in West Berlin, where we started this work on the violinist. And up to that point, you know, I had been on a, basically a, a regular professor with a lot of teaching, a lot of basically other responsibilities. But when I came to the Max Planck Institute, you know, I didn't have any other responsibilities than just doing my research. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess I found, you know, that the first, after the first couple of months, I was kind of basically feeling kind of exhausted and was kind of wondering, you know, this is my chance here to really do something and realizing now this limitation. And one thing that I've been doing, uh, you know, is reading biographies and I was now seeing how people that I really admired, you know, were really kind of constraining and separating that time when they were really trying to do their best from uh, the time when they were, you know, able to sort of, you know, more just regularly function uh, without kind of really trying to strain yourself. Uh, and that idea here that you should almost, and, and you could take your heart rate now with these watches to make sure here that when you wake up, you know, your heart rate is going to be a reasonable one mm -hmm. and that you're going to feel rested. And if you don't, you know, then maybe you need to adjust something that you're doing. But it is very tempting when you're motivated to want it to make that you know, progress so much faster than it's possible. But anyway, so uh, after that kind of realization, and then when we found the same pattern here with the violinist, I guess I've really tried to adapt my life and making sure here that, that the most challenging thing that I'm doing, and, and very often it involves kind of writing papers and, and trying to think through uh, some issues, uh, either, you know, a kind of, explaining here some research that we conducted and why those results have uh, some implication or writing a review chapter. But I would say that uh, that is probably the most challenging activity that I engage in is that sort of thinking about a new problem and maybe reading other people's papers and trying to figure out how they, you know, fit or don't fit in with uh, the way I was thinking about it. Uh, so, so that's sort of a little bit how my life has been now for a long time. And, and I found that a lot of, well, or at least several people have told me that this rule that I kind of initiated where I wouldn't have people scheduling meetings sort of before lunch. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so basically when I was an assistant professor, it's sort of like, you know, you do what people tell you to do. Mm -hmm. 
But once you kind of advance a little bit, if people say, okay, we're going to have a meeting, when are you available? When you just give other times, then basically that protected time. And, you know, you shouldn't really even get into this issue because some people wouldn't really respect it if you said, well, this is my writing time. Well, that's perfectly fine, you know, that we have the meeting then. Uh, but basically having a way here of, you know, really kind of getting other people to uh, adapt to your constraint here about when it's appropriate to have a meeting. Yeah, so it sounds like you really got to become religious about your daily practice schedule, right? To make sure that like, no matter what happens, no matter who wants something from you, you are actually focused and devoted in that moment and not thinking about anything else, not doing anything else. So you have that regular practice. And, and, and I think that once you adapt to it, it's actually almost reinforcing. Uh, now, obviously you have to make exceptions, you know, uh, sometimes yeah. somebody needs your help or whatever, but, but essentially having that in the same way that some people are as committed to their nine to five job, uh, you know, I'm committed to basically that morning hours for writing and thinking. No, I absolutely love that. Now to devote, you know, decades really of your life to any kind of pursuit uh, takes enormous discipline and, and, you know, as Angela Duckworth would call it grit. So what have you found do, you know, those people that really stick with it over the long run do differently? Um, and how do you sort of, you know, push through those years between, you know, year three and year five when they're getting good, but they're still so far away from actually becoming world-class. How do you make sure that, you know, when you're really trying so hard for so many years and you're still not there yet, quote unquote, how do you still keep going then? Well, again here, I I think just looking back at my own life and, and also other people I've talked to, I had pretty early on, you know, and I think this was maybe, you know, when I was starting at the university and, and sort of thinking a little bit about becoming a researcher, I wanted to find a problem that was big enough that it was going to last me a lifetime. <laughs> wow. and, and I guess what I was interested in was, uh, essentially in how we can describe people thinking when they're, uh, you know, facing complex tasks. And in particular, how we can understand why some people seem to be able to, you know, generate better solutions to those tasks than other people. And, and I think by kind of having that general task, it's sort of like everything I've been doing in much more detail have been subsumed under that general project. And I think that's one of the things about life projects that it's kind of nice when they, in some ways, it's almost like a tree, you know, you have mm -hmm. a very general trunk. And then essentially, as you get further and further away here from, from that basically trunk, it's going to be, you know, leaves and much more detail. And then, <clears throat> so in the last maybe decade, you know, I'm interested in, I guess, working with different people studying different kinds of expertise and 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 I kind of love working with experts I think experts you know they're committed in the same way that I'm committed and 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 I find you know that they're very thoughtful and and also they have a very high threshold for you know bs uh, so basically they'll tell you you know that's I don't believe that's that's not you know 
real. So if you want to convince them, you're going to have to basically work hard now to actually find the evidence that would, you know, really, uh, and, you know, compel them to uh, pay attention to what you're saying. And, but anyway, I think that idea here of working with people who are experts, and in, in a sense, you're almost having a, a kind of a cooperation here between the expert who is somehow pushing, you know, to new limits and actually trying out to understand here scientifically understanding what is it that basically this ability here to reach these high levels what implications does that have maybe for the rest of us in terms of what is modifiable and what does it take to basically get certain types of uh changes uh, uh happening yeah, that is so interesting. I think um, Simon Sinek, um, I don't know if you know him, um, amazing speaker and you know, leadership expert. And, and I think he calls this endless games, right? Something where that you can basically pursue for the rest of your life and there's never going to be an end to it, right? And it really sounds like with, you know, the challenges and the problems and the, you know, the, the opportunities that are provided in this field, you're never going to run out of, you know, stuff to do, out of stuff to discover. And that, that seems like it's an important part of that is that, there's always something new to discover, always something to grow, to you know, practice, to learn something new. And, and, and I think that's one of, uh, I've been giving some uh, talks here to different companies. One of the issues is that a lot of people after the first couple of years, you know, almost kind of settle in, in, in sort of a process that, you know, they're not feeling like they're growing and getting better. And, and they're, you know, almost sort of getting bored if we could basically make sure now that every person or as many people as possible, you know, had that kind of life project where in some sense they could really have that sense that they're, you know, learning something, getting a little bit further and what they're doing is making a difference to other people than themselves. Yes. That's so important. And I mean, you've made such enormous contribution to this field over the last 30 years now, right? In fact, I've, I've heard it said somewhere there, basically the science of peak performance has two eras, the time before Anders Ericsson and the time afterwards, right? <laughs> and I, I absolutely love that because in, in a way it's, it's really true. Um, so my question is like, what still are the, you know, the big open questions in your mind? I mean, you've you know, learned so much, we've learned so much over the last decade, but what are still some things that, you know, keep you up at night and that you wonder about and research about now? It's like, what is the next thing? Uh, I think for me, uh, one of the issues that basically has come up, how do you basically, uh, if you have one individual who is now engaging in say three hours uh, solitary practice, how would you be able to kind of tell that that individual now met the kind of assumptions and the criteria that we have for deliberate practice where you were actually engaging now in goals and you were basically making effort here to solve these things. And then you have another person who maybe does that for five minutes and then basically is more or less just playing their instrument for the rest mm -hmm. of the time. Because I think that if we're gonna help people, you know, actually practice in the way that we're recommending, we have to find some way here of actually getting, giving feedback and, and finding ways here of monitoring the differences between different people. And that 
probably, and that links up a little bit with my original interest here. And you know, how can we describe what's going on in people's heads when they're thinking? Now, what can we describe about what's going on in people's heads where somebody's actually improving much more than somebody else? And and what is the difference? And and once we can understand what the difference is, hopefully we'll be able to at least give that individual some insights into what the options are. I think it's going to be very hard to force people, or at least that's not something I'm particularly interested in. What I like to do is to give people options and clarify basically what are the implications here if you decide to do this or if you decide to do that. And I find that some people, it's almost like if they just put in the effort memorizing by rehearsing things that they believe now that they've generated that understanding and that kind of real genuine processing of the information. I mean, they've basically put in a lot of effort, but what they were doing has not really advanced them into something that is really helpful to them. And if they get a job that, you know, where this knowledge is going to be relevant, it's almost like they never really even were exposed to that information. Wow, that's so interesting because it, it really sounds like, you know, by giving people those options, you also give them the choice to really decide, don't want to play at the highest level or don't want to, you know, still do a lot of work, but do work that isn't quite on the same level, right? And never actually get there. So I think it's it just a very empowering thing for people to realize that just doing work, like just working hard is not enough if you're not also working smart, if you're not actually applying the right training strategies then you're just basically wasting your time, right? And just putting an effort without any results back. And, and one thing that I'm really interested in is to encourage people to document their learning history because I don't think that we really know what's going on in people's heads. And I think some individuals who people call gifted or creative or whatever, if you were basically understanding a little bit more what they were thinking about, you might actually understand now why they are able to you know respond in maybe more interesting ways than other people but that idea here that what you're thinking about and how you're actually thinking about it is actually you know uh, a process by which you will shape and change what you can do versus this idea that you know whatever you're thinking is sort of totally unrelated to anything that basically will uh, result from that activity. But I think today it's relatively rare to get these sort of thinking aloud protocols of people. And, and I've been sort of actually working on trying to assemble uh, some of these. And one thing that I think is kind of interesting. So when you wake up, what is the first thing that you think about? And I would say that basically somebody who is really excited about something, you know, they may be in love with somebody or maybe they're in love with some activity. The first thing that they think about are going to be related now to things that they want to do. Whereas I think some people who maybe would even call themselves depressed, you know, what they're thinking about is all the bad things, uh, and, and obviously, finding ways here of, of minimizing the risk, I think you will always be 
tested and challenged. Uh, but, you know, I think there are ways here that parents and other individuals, teachers, can actually help students sort of understand a little bit about what other people have faced and how some of the more successful ones, how they actually dealt with it. Um, but anyway, I think there's fortunately a lot of things to be done. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I heard this quote the other day. It said um, something along the lines of the ultimate luck in life is that for every mile that you travel, you're two miles further away from the destination. And, and that really, I butchered the quote a little bit, but that really blew me away, right? Like if you're in the pursuit of something where the, the more you move, the further you actually get away because the more you realize it's so endless, I think that is such a fascinating thing. Um, now, one of the things I ask every one of my guests is, I believe that failure is a stepping stone to success. So do you have a favorite failure in your life? So, so I personally don't think of failure as failure. Uh, so failure kind of, to me, implies that you thought that you were going to be successful. Uh, so, so I have probably tried to live by do your very best. Mm -hmm. And that's all you can do. And once you've done that, you can sit back and see what is it that I could have done better. But the fact that, you know, if I interviewed for some jobs, and I guess there are probably a, a couple like that that I didn't get offered, uh, you know, I, I could say that that's a failure. Uh, but I think in all both of those cases, I felt, you know, I did the best I could, and and I think in those cases, I was maybe telling myself, you know, it's it's a mutual thing, you know. I, I'm not going to be able to change here because you want something that's different from what I am. So basically, uh, part of this is going to be a, an issue here of match. So it's not a failure. I mean, maybe at least one of those I probably would have been interested in accepting if it, if I had gotten it. But you know, so in that sense, I don't think of um, failure. Uh, or at least I can't really remember one where, you know, I kind of was convinced or was hoping that I was going to make it and then got devastated when I didn't. Uh, I typically, as long as I can remember, have this philosophy of identifying the worst possible outcome and then planning for what I would do if that were to happen. Love and that. then I kind of forget about it. Mm -hmm. And now by just focusing in on trying to do the best I can. And that's basically, I don't know anybody who can do better than the best they can. <laughs> no, no, I, <laughs> no, I absolutely love that. Right. Because once you know your biggest fear, right, the worst thing that could possibly happen and you know, you're going to survive. Like I, I feel always feel like that is such a liberating feeling, right. To know that even if I fail, you know, completely at this, if I, don't get the job if I, you know, whatever happens, right? You're still going to be okay. Like life is going to go on. And in two years from now, you're probably going to laugh at it. So I love this, this process, what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, I, that was very important to me, basically, you know, that kind of sense here of having to face it, but then basically accepting it. And then I could just put it aside because if I have full control over that option, then that's the worst that could conceivably happen. Mm -hmm. 
No, I absolutely love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online, learn more about your work, whatever it is? Well, you know, I, I, I guess uh, I find that I have a hard time answering my email. So mm -hmm. that's about the only thing. And, so we're not going to send that out? <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, you know, my university has contact information. And, and I would say that basically uh, anybody interested might go to Google Scholar and see some of my recent papers or, you know, maybe uh, if they haven't uh, seen the book Peak, which I think is a, at least a very good introduction. Phenomenal to... book, yes, for sure. <laughs> Since you're so reluctantly pitching it, I feel like I have to, because I absolutely <laughs> love the book. I, th I think it's a total game changer, so. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, of course. Now, fi my final question, um, and this is really related to the theme of this podcast. What does mental mastery mean to you? I think basically that kind of honest attempt of really genuinely trying to understand something uh, in the way, basically, but, but I'm not sure that I would think of this as a state. I think it's more like a process. And at least for me, as I'm reading new things, uh, I think at least it's going to uh, alter some of my understanding. But that's part of what makes the journey interesting. So if I basically had arrived here at this be boring, right? <laughs> maximal uh, performance, then, you know, I, I don't know what I would be doing. All right, guys, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gained. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life, to really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now, guys, at this point, I want to ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review, as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, friend, a loved one maybe, that you think could benefit from this content, please consider you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them, as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.